Heavenly Father, thank you for this class. Thank you for the people who are here. Um, Lord, we want to know you. And I do believe that the book of Numbers teaches us much about who you are and how we are to relate to you. And I pray, Father, that you would help us um, fight through the difficult things and, and uh, uh, suck on the marrow of the bones, help us to uh, know you rightly. And uh, Lord, thank you for others who have uh, studied this book and have helped us move forward to understand it better. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we're in Numbers uh, chapter 1. Uh, we're at verse 17, and I'm just going to go ahead and read 17 to 19. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together, who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of of names, from 20 years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. And the the point of this, and Scripture loves to do this all the time, is basically whenever a direct command of God is given and the people obey that command, they love to tell you that they did it. So that's all, you know, it's like we learned last time that God told them you've got to take a census, and uh, now he's, uh, they actually do the census, and so you're just thankful that, Oh, good, they did what they're supposed to. A lot of times in Scripture, people don't do what they're supposed to do. So in this section, you're supposed to be, as a reader, you're supposed to be happy. Oh, they did what they, they, did what they were told to do. So then they are going to give us the results of the census. And it is long. It goes from uh, 20 all the way through 46. And I am going to read that. Uh, but I'm not going to read every word of it, and and you'll understand why here in a minute. So let me just read it. Uh, The people of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, by their generations, by their clans, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. So a couple uh, observations there, Uh, very much similar to what we just read in 18, by clans, by fathers' houses, by the number of names, 20 years old and upward, head by head, all that's just a repetition. They do give us an explanation in verse 20 as to part of the reason why they're taking the census, right? Do you see that little addition? Yeah, they're getting ready to go to war, right? who were able to go to war. So, um, now, again, I'll read all of the next one. Of the people of Simeon, their generations, by their clans, by their father's houses, those of them who were listed, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from 20 years old and upward, all who were able to go to war, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. So, really... Identical, right? Not really any changes between Reuben and Simeon. But they are uh, using repetition. And if you went through these, all of the 12 tribes, and I'll just, I'll 
verse 24, of the people of Gad, da 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 those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Of the people of Judah, verse 26, those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Of the people of Issachar, those listed, 54,000. Of the people of Zebulun, of the people of Ephraim, of the people of Manasseh, of the people of Benjamin, of the people of Dan, of the people of Asher, of the people of Naphtali. So all the way down to verse 44, these are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel, 12 men each representing his father's house. And then you get kind of the conclusion of the whole thing. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from 20 years old and upward Every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed, were 603,550. Okay? So it's just, it, it, if you were, um, you know, it doesn't make for good reading because there's repetition, uh, but why might God have wanted to repeat basically the same thing over and over again in this text of Scripture? Why not just say, oh yeah, and the process was repeated in each of the tribes? Why actually go to the, the, uh, the laborious task of listing all of those little details of each of the clans? Any suggestions? The genealogies uh, is definitely a possibility, yep. All being treated equally, good. Yeah. Okay, so it's, it's, it's very factual according to what happened. It's, 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 a, uh, it's not just written for story's sake. It's telling you something that actually did happen, right? Okay. So it stresses the importance. Yeah, I think that's a very... It, it often is there to help you... Uh, see that this is important. So if it's, if it's causing you as somebody disconnected to say, oh, uh, and just do what I did, like pass over things, uh, it's helping you to see that, oh, God must think this is very important, right? He's in the, how they uh, organize them, how the whole uh, nation was organized is very important to God. So any other thoughts? Correct, so this is an army, right? Right, so there's, there's real logistics to this. Uh, they are truly an army, and I've never been in the army, but those who are are very important about what unit you're in, of the 503rd Battalion, of this and this, right? It's, it's very clear who you are. So what battalion are you in in the, in the uh, nation of Israel? Just whatever tribe you're in, right? It's all according to your family and your tribe. And so uh, used to be, at least during the Civil War, this is similar how you were organized in the army in the Civil War, such that um, there's, a, there's a book that I read. Uh, gosh, I can't think of the memory of it now, uh, the name of it. But it is about the unit... <clears throat> 
the brigade, it's more than a regiment, I think, maybe it was a regiment, that came from this area. Uh, it was uh, Caldwell County, Ash County, like several different counties, and, and they formed that unit, and that unit uh, really didn't get in a lot of fights until the Battle of Gettysburg, and it was the largest unit going into the Battle of Gettysburg, and, and on the day one, they lose, they lose like 60 or 70% of their force in day one, so day two, they don't have any, any um, they don't do anything on day two because they're just recovering. Now, some of the force that, that were injured got to fight, you know, happy, came back into the unit, and they fight on day three during Pickett's Charge. And they were the unit that got further than any other unit uh, on the third day at Pickett's Charge. And so all of this is called, it's called Covered with Glory. That's the name of the book. And, uh, but it's fascinating to see that on those th- two days of battle, this area lost everyone. I mean, it, it was a huge deal to lose that many troops because they all came from the same place, right? They were your brothers, your sisters, those people that were fought. Well, they don't organize armies that way anymore, at least not here in America, right? They, and they do it for their reasons. Uh, but God, in organizing his army, wants you to fight with your tribe, you know, with your family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yes, that's true. And and there is a, a sense where Israel we need to remember Israel is not just a people, but it is an army. Right? Israel is an army. Um, so there could be other reasons that God did this. I, I don't know all the reasons why he might have, you know, chosen to do it quite this way, stress it as he did. But it's there, and, and uh, we are given a total of the number of people in this army 20 years old and older. So that number is 603,550. 603,550. Uh, that's just the men. And it's just the men 20 years and older. Right? Right. So those who were not able, or maybe... It doesn't really give us a cutoff, but there's possibly, if you were just too old to fight, that, that you would not have been counted. But the number of people in the uh, army that could fight. Uh, and then, so there's a guess as to how many people there actually were, right? Because there's more than that. So some people say even upwards of two and a half million people. Two and a half million people. How many people are in the state of North Carolina right now? 11 million. I mean, so you could probably go to the Charlotte. Is there 2 million people in Charlotte? Not even 2 million people in Charlotte. Think about how many people that is. Um, so... 
Historians, this, this creates a little dilemma for us, okay? Number one, how do you take care of two and a half million people in a desert? <laughs> and water, <laughs> right? So, huh? And animals, right? So you're, you're looking at this. So uh, it is estimated that Pharaoh's army... This is historians, this is extra biblical, but it's estimated that Pharaoh's army only numbered about 20,000 men. Uh, And one commentator says, why was Israel afraid of Egypt? (laughs) So you see the the kind of dilemma here. there are, again, these are extra-biblical from archaeologists and stuff, estimates of how many people lived in the land of Canaan during this time, uh, really less than 3 million people. Uh, and you have issues of, like, one of the, one of the best outdoor speakers ever was who? George Whitfield. He had one of the most booming voices, and it was it was said that he could speak to thirty thousand people without any extra, you know, speakers. You know, that's pretty good. But we're dealing with two and a half million people, and the text tells us that Moses spoke to them. So you see, all these are kind of challenging things, right, for us. Um, turn to Numbers three. 40 through 43, Numbers 3, 40 through 43. I will have somebody read that. If we've got a mic, Marcus, we have a microphone back here we can give to someone to read. Just raise your hand and he'll give you the microphone. You want to read those verses. There you go, Mike. Mike will do it. Numbers 3, 40 through 43. And the Lord said unto Moses, Number all the firstborn of the males of the children of Israel, from a month old and upward, and take the number of their names. And thou shalt take the Levites for me, I am the Lord, instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And the cattle of the Levites, instead of all the firstlings among the cattle of the children of Israel. And Moses numbered as the Lord commanded him, all the firstborn among the children of Israel. And all the firstborn males, by the number of names, from a month old and upward, of those that were numbered of them, were twenty and two thousand two hundred and three score and thirteen. Okay, so this number, 22,000 firstborns, also presents us a little bit of a difficulty because that means if, if you have 603,000 men and you have 26,000 first, 22,000 firstborns, that means in each family were, um, I think the math says, 26 brothers, not to mention sisters. You see how that... So now there are some... There are some uh, uh, well, we'll, we'll, I'll talk about ways to try to deal with this. But again, you're dealing with um, 
some challenges here, right? Then you have uh, the idea that this camp uh, sometimes would set up for no more than a day or two and then get going again. Now, sometimes they would stay in one place for a long time. But either way, it's a problem, right? Because if you stay in one place for a long time, what happens when an army stays in one place for a long time? They ruin it, right? Now, they were in a desert, so it's hard to ruin a desert. But still, if there were any uh, foliage for the animals to eat, very quickly that could have been gone, right? And so, uh, and then you have um, just the waste that people put forth, right? They don't have sanitation systems going on. So you're dealing with a lot of problems um, with this many people. Uh, Then... Just marching would have been difficult. If an army tries to march places, so if you're, um, if you're under um, Stonewall Jackson and you're in his army, he has a theory that if you fall out of the line, he just leaves you. He just keeps on going, right? So you can imagine having an, an army marching of 2.5 million people, how many people are stragglers? Or maybe they just stop and are so slow they don't go hardly anywhere. So you... There's a lot of issues going on with having two and a half million people. Now, this has led people to question this. So, uh, some people think that, the, uh, that they're taking actual numbers from the time of David and imposing them on this. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with all these. I'm just telling you this is what people have, you know, done And I just want you to feel, it's good for us to feel that, wow, this is a real conundrum here. Um, Some people say that the the numbers are symbolic. um, And there's a lot of, couple different ways that they work this out. um, That they think that the numbers are really multiplied by 1,000. I won't go into all the details of that, uh, but sometimes they talk about that instead of uh, thousands, they're clans, not necessarily thousands. Um, some people say that it's a translation issue. Uh, um, I don't know. There's all these different things. Uh, uh, one option, though, uh, another option is that's somewhat uh, hyperbole. Uh, so you get all these people. And in fact, if you're going to go to a, a secular university, they'll probably pull this out and say, you can't trust anything in the Old Testament. You know, it's, it's clearly not uh, factual, historical, those kind of things. Um, another option is just take the numbers as they are and live with the difficulties. And that's, that's where I uh, live. I don't understand I don't know, it doesn't make sense to me. It does tell me that if, uh, that the, the provision of Israel uh, in, whoops, that's not good. The provision in Israel is, it's going to be miraculous. No question about it. Um, what's that? Oh, they're going to be fed manna, they're going to be fed quail. 
I think it's pretty quick. It's one of the first things that happens. So, so anyway, I just want you to feel that, yeah, there's some real issues. So you, we always hear, oh, how did you get all the animals on the ark? And how did this happen? And how did that happen? And, well, the Bible is miraculous. There's no doubt about it. And you, it just doesn't make sense. Now, the fear of the Israelites just tells me, I mean, we, we fear things all the time we shouldn't fear, right? We have the Lord of the universe behind us, and so they're going to they're gonna fear the Canaanites, so they're going to fear the Israelites, and uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's, it's just an interesting uh, beginning to the book of Numbers, and um, yeah, yeah, it's a... It's a lot of fun. Any other thoughts on just the numbers uh, issues? Go ahead, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, again, uh, I'm just telling you different things that I've read in commentaries and people that trying to wrestle through with this. So, yeah. Yeah, the biggest issue for me is uh, the issue in Numbers 3 about the names of uh, those one-month-old and the firstborns. And Kyle, uh, Kyle and Deletes is a commentary, and he suggests that the number of the firstborn only included the 13 months since leaving Egypt, that it wasn't, that wasn't the firstborn of all firstborn, it was just those born in the year, because it's been a year since they have come out of Egypt, and that, that's the, the number for that. So that, that makes sense to me. Uh, so, yeah, um, there's a lot of different ways to go about it, but ultimately, I just, I, I'm okay with living a little bit of uncertainty. I don't understand how it all happened. I don't understand what's going on. So that's absolutely. That's a good point. See, as the shoes don't wear out, they don't need a quartermaster. They don't need a cobbler. You know, those kind of cooks. <laughs> they do boil things. Uh, yeah. So they do boil things and how they get the wood for that is very interesting. But, you know, if nothing else, this, a lot of times we approach the Bible as if we, the Bible is on trial, and that, and that if it doesn't meet up to our expectations, then we're just going to cast that off. And I think the better way to approach this is, this is God's word. I don't understand everything about it, but approach it with a sense of humility, um, you know, uh, maybe there'll be a, uh, nice explanations and many other places in scripture as time has gone on and commentators have more considered things, things have made more and more sense, given us more clarity. Uh, but just know that the issue of numbers is a dilemma for us. So, Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. 
the internal consistencies are probably the, the, ish, the biggest issues, right? And that's why the issue with the, um, the uh, firstborn a month old is something that, you know, has to have some explanation to us, so... Uh, yeah, that was a king, though, right? Like, they, they could have multiple wives, and we're assuming that most of the Israelites didn't have, like, multiple wives at this time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Solomon had plenty of, you know, half-brothers and stuff, too, but um, that's not typical, probably, of the Israelites to have that many. So, uh, okay. Um, how about the numbers just in general? Any observations that you make from the numbers? Compared to one another? You know, and you have them on your sheet there, so you can, you can look at them and kind of compare them all. Uh, is there perfect symmetry among the tribes? No, there's not. Uh, if you get to the book of Revelation, and they're talking about the 144,000 in the church in, in Revelation, there is absolute perfect symmetry, which is interesting. Um, my opinion is that uh, when we understand God's final salvation and the elect it will be perfectly symmetrical. Like we'll all just go, oh, wow, this is, everything is perfect, you know. Um, but in reality, that's not where they are. In, the, in this life, uh, there's, not a, there's not a symmetry that's going on between the tribes. Uh, Judah is the largest, 74,000. Judah does seem to be given prominence. Uh, but it's also true that Dan is pretty large, and Dan actually kind of falls off the face of the, the earth later on. So yeah, it's interesting. Um, I would think that uh, given the prominence of position of Judah, there's probably a potential for, for pride with them as well. Maybe a sign of blessing, but also a sign of pride. Yeah, we'll get to that here in just a minute. Yeah, it'll be, we'll get it exactly. So, um, oh, okay, yeah, like a, the, the phalanx. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll get to the kind of positions of them here in a minute because we're going to go pretty quickly through this. We... Yeah, one tribe. It'd be the largest, that's right. Yeah, very good. Very good. Uh, if You probably wouldn't notice this unless I just told you, but the order is a little bit different. Um, Gad is moved up from 11 to 3. Uh, Judah is moved down uh, from 3 to 4. You know, so the order is a little bit different. Again, I don't know why. Uh, you know... Uh, I don't know why that so quickly from here's the people taking the census to here's the census, they change the order a little bit. I, I don't know. Uh, it's a 
interesting question, but okay, so let's keep going. Uh, 47 to 51. Verse 1, 47 to 51. Uh, Joe, would you read that for me? You're just back there close to the microphone. That's why I'm picking on you. All right. You shall take five shekels per head. Wait, this is uh, chapter 1, 47. Oh, chapter 1. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm further ahead. Yeah. What was that again? 47? Uh, Through 51. Okay. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. For the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall, put, you shall not list, and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belong to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall take care of it, and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is set out, the Levites shall take it down, and when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Okay, so um, uh, very simple uh, duties of the Levites. They are to camp around the tabernacle. That's, their, that's one duty. What else are they called to do? Put up and take down the tabernacle. Carry the tabernacle stuff. And if somebody comes near, they're supposed to kill them. Right? Those are, the, those are their duties. Uh, and so they, they're here. Around, we'll go into more on this uh, as we see the picture, but we're just going rather quickly. 52 to 54. Uh, Chris, you want to read that for me? The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp, and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Okay. Um, observations on this little uh, section of scripture is that the, um, the reason for the Levites around here, it's an issue of arrow. Um, are we, is the Levites, are they there to protect the tabernacle or are they there to protect the people? Yes. They're there to protect the people from the tabernacle, okay? Uh, this is just an important point. God does not need protecting. So this camp was very similar to other camps, and often the king would be at the center, okay, of like the Egyptian army or some other. He would set up his camp like this, and the king would be here. And he would be there to show that he's the most important, but he would also be there to have protection, everybody around him to protect him. Well, two things, Israel doesn't have a king, except that it's the Lord. And number two, the Lord doesn't need protecting. So those are the uh, is- issues. Um, they, um, there is a very clear distinction, the camp of the Lord. 
So if we were to take this whole whiteboard as the camp, outside of the camp is unholy, inside of the camp is holy. But every, every, um, every step you get closer, you're getting to another degree of holiness. So it looks like that. Okay? So, um, not holy at all. Holy, but not nearly as holy as the Levites. Not nearly as holy as the actual tent of meeting here. And not nearly as holy as the holy of holies. Do you see that? How there's just level after level after level. So for somebody he, uh, here to come into here is a dangerous thing. For somebody here to come here is a dangerous thing. For somebody here to come here is a dangerous thing. Somebody from here to here, dangerous. Yes. The whole world. <laughs> There's no, they're in the desert. There's no one there. But the same thing will be set up in, uh, the, in the temple. The same thing will be set up. Uh, it's a permanent concept, okay? So just understand this levels of holiness, uh, there is a clear distinction between inside and outside, right? Uh, so those are inside and those are outside. There's a clear distinction. So that's, there's, a, there's a, what we call like a hard edge between one level and the next level. Um, but the whole uh, situation is center-focused, so everyone, if you want to understand what's the heart of who we are as a people, everyone is, is, finds their place in light of the, the, the central piece. So when you think about our, if you're going to apply this to our lives, everything in life ought to be centered around God at the center. Right? He's, you exist in a church, which is a part of... Uh, you know, this place where God dwells, and we all are focused on him at the center. He is the center of our existence and should be the center of how we live every day. Um, okay, so this, just like a picture of idolatry. So if you move God out of the center and put something else at the center, that's idolatry, right? God is the absolute center of existence, and God, in setting up the camp, actually makes this point uh, blatantly clear. Yes? Not the tabernacle, because mm-hmm. the Lord didn't need protecting. Is it protecting the people from the wrath of God? What yes. is it protecting? Yes. That's okay. In fact, even the high priest, so like the high priest, when he comes into the tent, he can only come in once a year, and... And he was in danger if he came in the wrong way without doing the appropriate things to cleanse him. He could be killed on the spot. So, um, so even the high priest who was there to protect other people himself needed to make sure he does it right. Yes, Joe? I've got a question about uh, this wording here about them pitching their tents. He says that they pitched their tents, each man by his own camp and each man by his own standard. Uh, when we think of that, we think like epistemologically a lot of the times, you know, by what standard. Uh-huh. But I'm curious as to what, I don't think Moses is really talking about epistemology here. The standard is, um, 
Standard is just the flag. Okay. So, again, just like in an army, you carry the, the standard bearer, the flag. And so, it, you know, I'm of the tribe of Judah, but I'm also maybe of a sub-tribe of Judah, you know, and you, you have your banners uh, according to your, um, your tribe. And so there's a very uh, corporate sense going on here. There are individuals in the, tri- in the whole camp, but they are connected corporately. So that's, that's very... According to their banner, might be another way to put it. Uh, Alan says, The people of Israel were a community that had their essential meaning in relationship to God and to one another. That's a profound statement. They were a community that had their essential meaning in relationship to God and to one another. Like it or not, in, in You think of the history of America, where were the churches located at the, in the first hundred years of our existence? In the, right downtown, right? Right at the center of the, of the town. And if you, um, if you wanted to have a town meeting or things going on with your community, it happened in the church, right? It was the central aspect of what you did. Now, now you have churches, uh, from a society perspective, are irrelevant to society. So if you look at all the things that are going on in society, all the cultural things that are happening, the church is not really at the center of any of those, right? So it's going to be harder for us as people to, to think to ourselves, oh, what is going to be the center of my existence? Well, it's going to be the church. It's going to be... God at the center of my existence, and that's harder for us to do in a uh, very secular world that doesn't see the church as relevant at all. So, uh, and a lot of that was because of the the downtowns um, really went downhill. And so then they were looking to where the people had moved to the outside. So it's not really bad that cities or churches are on the outskirts of town, I don't think. But I do think it just shows culturally how the centers of life in our culture is no longer the church, no longer God. And it's temptation for us as people to view our, um, so like whatever you put here, it could be your family, it could be sports, it could be something else, and your tabernacle, your church is out here. Think about your life, right? So what's at the center of your existence? What is the highest and most important aspect of your life? It should be your connection with God and with the rest of the people of God. That's, that's I think, the, the, the principle that God is putting forth to us when he sets up his, his camp. Yes, Lori. Huh? Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, we haven't really got here yet because it's really kind of at the end of chapter 
5, um, this whole beginning section. But really, all of this setup is to tell you that the way into the Holy of Holies has not yet been opened. So, right, the, the big difference is, like, you don't have to, you're here, you don't have to let another priest go into this area for you. You can come all the way in to here because of the blood of Christ. I mean, that's the book of Hebrews, is that you get to be in the Holy of Holies with God, uh, the beauty of what Christ has done for you. So this whole setup is, is temporal. So it's, it's showing you that there is a way for God to dwell with his people, but it's also showing you that it's not yet fully revealed. So it's like this yes and no uh, going on. Yes, we have God as our God. He's actually dwelling on the earth with us. He's not just up in heaven. That's a great thing. We see the pillar of, of fire and the pillar of cloud uh, coming down on the temple. And, oh, we're, that's our God. He's with us. But can you get to him? No, you can't get to him. Except by the priest as your representative, right? And that's, uh, it's very limited. And so... Uh, So the people of Israel were a community that had their essential meaning in relationship to God and with one another. But ever in the community was the continuing stress on the individual to know where he belonged in the larger community. Corporate solidarity in ancient Israel was a reality of daily life, but the individual was also very important. So you are in community, you're corporate with other people, but you're also individual. Uh, Individual. Because you, by yourself, you could come up here and you could bring your offering to the Lord. And the priest would take your offering. It's like an individual thing, right? And so we try to capture both of these in our own uh, communion, right? We have the corporate element that we hold the the cup until all have been served and we drink together because we're in solidarity with the whole community. But we take of the bread individually, um, not the only way to symbolize that. I've seen people do it the exact opposite. Eat the bread together, take the cup individually. But it just the idea that there's individual and corporate is very important. Both of those are important if we're going to understand who we are as the people of God. Uh, okay, let's keep going. Um, let's read Numbers chapter 2, uh, 1 and 2. Nathan Graybill, can you read those for us? The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, The Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. Uh, keep, keep going. Oh. Um, keep, just read that they shall camp. Do you have that or not? No, I have the NIV. <laughs> okay, I'll read um, it. Do you want me to read three? No, well, I don't know. I don't know where they break it. Um, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, the people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. You don't have anything of that nature, huh? Okay, yeah. Well, the idea is that the idea is that your tent should have a door to your tent and it should be facing inward. Like this. Okay. 
So your everybody is then faced inward. That's where our focus needs to be. It'd be the opposite. If you're, if you're worried about enemies outside, you would think it'd be the other way. Uh, this is not a defensive setup, is it? Okay. <laughs> That's right. You're, you need to fix your eyes on God, not on the world around you. I mean, this is your, your focus, your, your whole life is to be fixed upon God himself. All right, so Numbers chapter 2, verses 3 through 9. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise, those to camp over here, um, shall be the standard of the camp of Judah. So Judah is the main uh, uber uber standard because he's going to be, there's going to be three tribes that are going to be connected to Judah. Um, They give his tribe, then the tribe of Issachar, and the tribe of Zebulun. So you could look at here, you got Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, all on the east side. Um, And then you go, um, the total of those three tribes is 186,000. Then you go in verse 10, to the south side, Again, you can just see it on your map. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad, all three of those. Um, And their total is 151,450 on the south side. Uh, There's a little detail that's given in verse 17. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps as they camp. So they set out each in position, standard by standard. Um, so in other words, as the army will set out, you'll have these three go, these three go, and then you're going to have the tent that's going to be in the middle of the long march. Okay. Um, then in verse 18, on the west side, Ephraim, Gamaliel, Abaddon, 108,000. And then on the north side, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, 157,000. So you have, depending on how you think of things, this this is your rear guard, right? This is your uh, avant guard, the beginning. Um, So in the line of march, but in in the line of march, these these two are more close to the tent of meeting. So you got your front and back. Uh, if In the way the camp's set up, this tribe is given uh, precedence because it's at the entrance. Uh, these guys are at the back of the Holy of Holies, right? They're <laughs> the backyard, so to speak. Um, so uh, general lessons, and that's all we can draw really from this, the camp is facing which way? Toward the sunrise. Why would that be the case? Why would he face the camp towards the sunrise? Any uh, thoughts? I, well, I think it, there is a sense that God comes from the east. 
uh, the king, Judah, will be always be told, said to come out of the east to his, into his temple. And I do think it's the sunrise, which definitely relates to the uh, going from darkness to light when the Messiah comes. So it's always facing towards the east. Um, the Garden of Eden was in the east. Yep. Yep. The east is always given prominence. Uh, I would argue that even though Judah is certainly given prominence, according to the, the, uh, uh, the promise of God in Genesis 49, uh, everyone has a place in the community. There's not anyone that doesn't have a place. And I think it, there's, um, because God sets all this up, it is to avoid jealousies. And we'll see in the book of Numbers that there's jealousy going on. Big time. Because Moses is going to be one of the most important people. And Miriam is not going to like that. Why, why don't I get that? You know, so jealousies. But God gives us our place in his church. And a big part of accepting uh, life is just saying, God, help me to accept what you've given me to do in life. I need to be focused on you, and I need to accept the position that you've given to me, whether it be here, whether it be here, whether it be here, doesn't matter. Just accept what God's given to you. Um, I think the fact that the, the uh, positions of north, south, east, and west are prominent, I think is a helpful to understand that the camp is also limited in its scope. It's a, it's a foreshadow of God's eternal kingdom, which will go out to the four corners of the earth, right? It will, it's not just going to be this little group here. It is going to cover the entire earth, the four corners of the earth. I think that is there. I think we can also see that there, the community has structure, in order to it, it's not just any old way. Um, and I think I've already mentioned that there is a closer and closer you get to the center, you have this degrees of holiness um, in the camp. Segregation in what way? Well, no, and I, and I would just say that um, in our day and age, not that this is a foreshadow of, of the splintered church that we have today, uh, but the idea is that it's okay to be of a particular tribe. We're part of Faith Presbyterian Church, but we acknowledge that we're not the only church, and you know, that there's more churches beyond us. We are closest to the people in our tribe. I would assume that the people here would, would have a closer connection with their people and maybe the people here and here than they do on the people on the other side. You know? It's not out of the question. <laughs> right. But there's order to it all. <clears throat> okay, so this brings us to chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4. Mary, would you read that for me, please? Here comes the microphone, I think. Thank you. 
One through four. Yeah. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. All right, so here's, just give me some of your initial observations when you read this. Why is this section placed in there? What are they, what are they trying to communicate? Set, uh, bring the microphone to her so I can hear that. How you worship God is important. How you worship God is important. So the, the priority of worship, and not just that you do it, but that there's a, there's a how to it is important. That's, I think I hear what you're saying, right? Okay. For generations. Okay. Good principle. What else? Yeah, it's like he's he's narrowing. It's a, there's a narrow focus here. Um, he he's talking about the priesthood and they're being set apart, right? They are um, in Exodus 19. God says to Moses, "Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments." Talking about all the people, but then also the priests are to be um, set apart, especially. Um, and, and they are to be anointed and ordained by God, right? That's verse 3. They are the anointed priests. They are ordained by God. So we can ask the question, what does it mean to be anointed? What does it mean to be ordained? And then we need to ask the question, does that, does that mean absolute acceptance and they can do no wrong. Is that, is that what it means? Not at all, right? So what, is it, what do you think it means to be anointed? This is a big issue in the book of Leviticus and Numbers. What, is, what does it mean to be anointed? Okay, so set apart. What did you say, Peter? Set apart, marked. Uh, gifting. Somebody else say something? Chosen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so the, the oil was a big part of the anointing, right? I'll talk more about this anointing in later, later chapters, but, but there's something that is done to the person, and God looks at them differently uh, because of this anointed, okay? They are, they are, there's a, talk about these levels of holiness, the anointing actually kicks you up, 
God does it. You don't just choose to go up. God actually kicks you up to a higher level of anointing. In this situation, all four of Adam's, Aaron's uh, children are anointed. They are also ordained. What does ordained mean? Commissioned? Yep, commissioned, would you say? Okay. And chosen again, okay. I think both of these are more of what God does, even though there were certain uh, symbolic actions that the people did do. But I think ordained and anointed are both actions that God does. Uh, There will be later on, and I'll talk about all three of these again in chapter 7, because they'll talk about anointing uh, and dedicating. And that's more of what people do. They're in their response to the anointing, they dedicate. Is there an age involved? Is it when at age 30 that they become a priest? Right, so yes, there's, there's a, again, this is supplemental material. So in the, in, uh, is it Exodus or Leviticus? I'm trying to remember which one, uh, maybe both. They talk about the age limit, that this is when the priest enters his, his t- service. And so um, there's a, this is a clear commissioning. I think given authority to carry out the task, God actually says, yes, you can do this. So these are actions by God. Um, and if, you, if someone tells you that you are the anointed one, that you've been anointed, and that you have been ordained to a high office or calling, what would be the uh, uh, reaction that a sinful heart might do? Pride, right? And so then these two guys, these two sons, think they do whatever they want. And then what does God do? Kills them. So that's the point. So we don't want to get rid of, oh, let's not even talk about ordination or anointing, that's like, those are really not important. You just got to do what's right. God is the one that sets up anointing and ordination. If, if anyone tried to just do the right things, but didn't have God's anointing and ordination, they would be out of line. So if somebody from a different tribe said, hey, I'm going to take their place, and I'm going to, God would say, no. You have to be anointed by God and chosen by him for this place. But even if you're in it, you should serve with an act of humility and very great care to the office that you've been given. Very similar things that go on today with the uh, elders and deacons in the church. They are anointed, they are ordained, but they're also called to a standard of trying to execute their office with great care instead of just flippantly. So, okay, we're out of time. We need to stop. Uh, we'll pick it up here. Um, yeah. Okay. Father, thank you for this, uh, class and, uh, thank you that even though that we are very far removed, uh, there are many things that we can apply to us, 
I thank you that you want to be the center of the church. You want to be um, the one who calls us into your presence as we get ready to worship. Let's rejoice that you call us into your presence and that the blood of Christ uh, cleanses us so that we can come boldly into your presence. We thank you for that. Um, And we just ask, God, that you would help us as we continue to study the book of Numbers. In Jesus' name, amen.